If you want a wildly healthy, naturally disease-resistant pet who turns heads and starts conversations with awestruck onlookers, you're right where you belong. This is the Vital Animal Podcast with your host, homeopathic veterinarian, Dr. Will Falconer. Welcome to another episode of the Vital Animal Podcast. This is Dr. Will Falconer, and today we are asking a big question. If you've been following conversations of late online, are viruses real or not? So skepticism is a healthy thing, especially in the last couple of years when there's been a lot of kind of smoke and mirrors and deception going on. But it needs a good definition. I found this one from philosophy. Skepticism is a mode of inquiry that emphasizes critical scrutiny, caution, and intellectual rigor. That last part is particularly attractive as it's all too easy to simply diss something without looking deeper at the evidence and the history behind it. I like to think the ideal skeptic has an open mind. In reality, my experience has been that most self-acclaimed skeptics really have just the opposite. Their minds are closed, like homeopathy could not possibly work, it's too diluted, yada, yada, yada. And yet, as my colleague and friend Steve says, they've got to get out of the way of the people who are using it on a regular basis and seeing results in animals who know no placebo response. So this podcast came about from several of you asking me to listen to or kind of put to rest this small but vocal minority who's saying viruses simply do not exist. The scientists who study them must have all been peering into the dark microscopes for too long and missed the truth that they're really just exosomes or tiny packets or particles expelled by the cell. Some claim that viruses are really just only the breakdown products of dying cells and they're wrongfully called viruses. But before we tackle that, let's look at another perhaps controversial subject that is germ theory versus terrain. That's part of the argument often linked to the viruses aren't real theory that's been floating around of late. I blogged about this some time ago, and I'll have a link in the show notes for you. And as this is episode number 40, you'll find the show notes at vitalanimal.com slash 40. But in a nutshell, we know from experience that germs like bacteria or viruses don't attack everyone equally, right? If someone visits a party with, say, 40 people in the room, she's got a cold and sneezes repeatedly and out go the, her cold viruses, not everyone will get her cold. Are you with me there? Well, that's a, that's a given. So that's the concept of a healthy terrain, which simply means the healthy body doesn't succumb to the germ the same way an unhealthy one more likely will. We saw this with COVID-19, now hopefully behind us. It was the hardest on the oldest folks and those with comorbidities and really didn't touch the youngsters. Also, it seemed to affect those highly polluted areas like Wuhan and northern India, or northern Italy, rather, where air pollution was very high, less so than those people in the more pristine areas on the globe. 
And so it is. We know terrain is important. And Pasteur, Louis Pasteur, who's often called the father of germ theory, supposedly said on his deathbed that his contemporary, Dr. Virchow, got it right. Virchow was the one who said, it's the terrain, it's not the germ that we need to pay attention to. We see this in veterinary medicine quite often. One of the commoner ones is these funky ears that we'll see. The animal's scratching, the ear doesn't smell good, there's a bunch of discharge inside. And often if vets will swab that discharge, they'll say, aha, look at all this yeast inside, or look at this pseudomonas bacteria. Well, did the yeast make them that way, or did the pseudomonas bacteria make them that way, or did they merely move in when the allergies made the ears unhealthy enough to resist their overgrowth? Another example is healthy dogs with high Lyme titers, showing no symptoms at all, but often bombarded with a month worth of antibiotics without vets thoroughly thinking it through. Remember, a titer is a sign of immunity. And an animal who's healthy and showing no symptoms but has a high Lyme titer just means that they're putting up a good fight. You can search through the podcast for my interview with Dr. Todd Cooney on Lyme if you're interested in more on that. So nuance is important in our thinking, especially now as we seem so grossly polarized, especially in the West. Does accepting terrain theory mean that there are no pathogenic germs anymore? No. And can we have infectious viruses like coronaviruses, well identified by virologists for decades, and have exosomes, these little packets of cellular information that butt off of a cell? Yes, we can, and we do. And were the deaths attributed to COVID-19 all due to unhealthy terrain or a strongly infectious agent? Well, how about both coexisting? Can we entertain that idea? Another older one is nature versus nurture. You know this one? Nature is the idea that we are the products of our genetic inheritance, or our animals are the products of their genetic inheritance. While nurture speaks to how we or they were raised, did we grow up with a healthy diet? Did we feed our dogs and cats and horses a natural diet, one that's based on who they are genetically? How did we choose to raise them as far as vaccines and pesticides, that sort of thing? And quite some time ago, I came to realize that they both play a role. So if someone ever asked me, is it nature or nurture? My answer is a bold yes. So with all that as background, let's look at a disease I've long studied and continue to be interested in, and that's rabies. My interest goes back to when I was hired by the state of Hawaii in the late 80s to study their 80-year-old quarantine system. It meant back then that every dog or cat coming from the mainland U.S. or anywhere else in the world who had rabies was quarantined for four straight months. Well, I dug deep. I read all the experts. I lived in the quarantine station, actually, on Oahu. I interviewed all the staff, and I even worked as a vet on the weekends there to help the sick patients in the in the clinics, the quarantine stations clinic, and almost said in my paper that was going to the state veterinarian that the system was fine. You know, it wasn't broken. But in the 11th hour, I had a change of heart, and I wrote in my paper that I thought the system was unfairly burdening 
especially those coming from the developed countries like the mainland United States. And lo and behold, some years later, that paper helped to change the system. Now, if you've got your papers in order, some vaccines and some titers, you can get right off the plane and go home with your animal. So a quick review on rabies. How does it spread from animal to animal? Well, first, we'll talk about a rabid dog. Most often, that's the host that gets it to people. So let's talk about a rabid dog. We've seen them in society for centuries now. They come wobbling down the street, drooling, acting crazy, biting everything in sight, maybe even non-animate objects like eating indigestible stuff, wool or cloth. And that animal, the crazy dog, often bites a child. At least that's what happens in the third world. The child then falls sick and with adequate and timely treatment, usually dies. Treatment, if caught in time, includes wound cleansing with soap and water and multiple shots of serum, which is full of antibody against the rabies virus. And death, when it happens, is often accompanied with similar symptoms as the dog who was rabid had. The child can no longer swallow, his throat is paralyzed, so he's drooling. He may make strange sounds, and he's got acute hydrophobia, meaning it's so extremely painful to swallow that the thought of drinking water just throws him into conniptions because it causes spasms in the throat that make him feel like he's about to suffocate. And finally, the paralysis reaches deeper and the child can no longer breathe and so dies a horrible death of just that, of suffocation. A better example, perhaps, in the West, in developed countries, is the rabid raccoon or skunk bites a dog, say your dog. And after a certain period of time, called the incubation period, the dog also shows symptoms of rabies. That incubation period, by the way, is well studied and has been for years. We've known, for instance, that the rabies virus getting in from the rabid bite doesn't travel by the blood into the bitten animal. It travels along the nerve sheaths, which is a very slow mode of movement. And its goal, the virus's goal, is to make it to the brain so it can change this dog's behavior and spread the virus further. So if the dog is bitten in the hind leg, it'll get rabies more slowly than the one who's bitten in the face. You see, it's closer to the brain in the latter case. And of course, he's now a danger to his humans. And one more thing we know is that once the virus reaches the brain, it then turns around and goes down to the salivary glands, where it's produced in high numbers. So guess what? Now his saliva is primed to deliver the virus to the next victim. So his kind, the crazy rabid dog, was shot on the street in earlier times, as his symptoms were rarely coming from anything that he was going to recover from, and people were known to be at risk. Perhaps that scene with Atticus in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird will come to mind for you. The rabies virus will show up in the brain of that raccoon, skunk, or dog, and I'll actually have some scanning electron microscope images in the show notes for you. We know what this virus looks like and have for probably decades now. So viruses are clearly real, and any YouTube expert, in quotes, telling you he's got it all figured out, clearly hasn't studied virology, right? 
Does he imagine all those scientists who were virologists or are presently virologists were simply highly trained fools? Or that they are all colluding to keep us in the dark and maybe they've all got ties to the vaccine industry and will profit from their research by getting a vaccine on the market? I've also got a YouTube video in the show notes of two virologists talking about COVID. Not so much to say they've got all the answers. This was recorded in early 2020. But more to show you how deeply these guys understand viruses and exosomes and what the difference is. Again, the show notes where you can view this YouTube video is at vitalanimal.com slash 40. So speaking of vaccines, let's give some further evidence on rabies that we've known for decades now. As an aside, before we launch into this, if you followed me for any amount of time, you'll know I have grave concerns about vaccines, especially when they are given far in excess of need, which is all too common in both veterinary and human medicine today. I've long called vaccination the number one predictor of chronic disease in your pets. That said, here's what we've seen in the field of rabies and vaccines. Any where volunteers, in this case mostly vets, have gone in India or African countries to vaccinate every dog they possibly can for rabies, the rate of human deaths dropped. Human deaths from rabies. And not by a little, but precipitously dropped. There's good data on that, and I'll have more details in that in my Rabies Knowledge is Power course, which will open again this year for you to enroll if you haven't yet. In the developed countries in the West, rabies in dogs is largely unheard of. Why? Vaccine campaigns have been going on since the mid-1940s. It's still in our wildlife, like the raccoon and the skunk and some bats. And that's primarily the source to your pets, potentially. So what does that say about efficacy? The does it work question. Well, rabies vaccines clearly work. And guess what they're made of? Killed rabies viruses. Not exosomes or some imaginary stuff. It's real viruses that were inactivated and put in a syringe and injected into your animal. Now, does that mean vaccines are safe? Whoa, not by a mile. Every vaccine you choose to give needs to be very carefully considered based on your risk versus benefit from getting it. And finally, do yearly or even every three-year vaccines make sense? Still a big no, emphatically, bold letters, all caps, N-O. They are not. As always, stay tuned and I'll keep you as informed as you care to be and help you sort out the BS from the reality. I hope this has been helpful to you. This is Dr. Will Falconer, and if you're not already a member of my free Vital Animal Pack, be sure to visit the show notes on this episode, again at vitalanimal.com slash 40, as this is episode 40. All pack members get access to a free library of extra information of use in raising your wildly healthy, naturally disease-resistant animals who will stay with you for a long, long time. So keep on taking care of those innocents in your care by making wise decisions on their behalf. And keep an eye out for more from me in your inbox. Only pack members get my updates and vital animal news. So visit the show notes and be sure you're on board as a free member. 
Talk to you next time.